welcome to today's episode of In Fellowship, the podcast where we explore community building through a chapter-by-chapter read of The Lord of the Rings. My name is Ellen. And my name is Anna. And in today's episode, we're discussing Book 4, Chapter 1, The Taming of Smeagol, discussing trust in community. Ellen, it's season four. It's season four. We've done this four whole times now. Mm Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about our progress? I feel great. I'm ready for season four. I have taken some time to really meditate on the themes of this particular book. We know that we feel medium about this plot point Mm -hmm. where we are, but yeah, I've really come to peace and I'm ready to open hearts, open mind, examine this, this whole season. I admire your open-mindedness, and I'm going to aspire to hold that that same tenet as we move forward. I make no promises mm-hmm. that I can actually execute that because, as you say, it's a pretty grim, pretty bleak tone, and mm-hmm. the characters themselves are pretty intense, and there are a lot of dynamics to unpack. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the conversation, and hopefully I will find some some new or perhaps renewed appreciation mm-hmm. for one, all of the characters or this book. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's, let's look for some appreciation. Speak it into yeah. the universe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that is... That's the intention. We've mm-hmm. spoken that into reality. But today, specifically, we're talking about trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to know, what is your story regarding trust and community? I know I've talked about my time as a camp counselor before on the podcast, but there's no place that builds trust like summer camp. So the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I was a camp counselor at a sleepaway camp in upstate New York. And per my request, if you can believe it, I was placed in the bunk with the 12 and the 13-year-olds. I think this is a fun age because there's still a good chance that you aren't yet a surly teenager, but you are old enough to have really fun conversations and chat with uh, a bit more in depth. So that's that's my pitch for the 12 and the 13-year-olds. So... Now about half of the bunk of these girls were all set on counselors. These were girls who had been coming year after year. Their counselors had been coming year after year. They were basically all ex-campers turned counselors. And that group, they were all set in a nice, trusting little community. The other half of the bunk were girls who, for whatever reason, didn't fit in with that first half. We had some first-time campers. We had a girl from Spain who really didn't speak very much English. We had a girl who refused to put her book down at lunch and speak with the other campers. There was a girl who was really into showing off her Irish step dancing. You know, just a real, a disparate collection. And I know that if I had been a camper in this bunk, I know those girls would have been my crew. That would have been my team. And so I worked on trying to build the trust and the confidence of those kids. I brought out the Uno deck, which was a huge hit. I shared my coloring book calendar and colored pencils. The highlight was maybe taking them all 
camping when none of the other counselors wanted to spend the night in a tent. And if you believe it, I did. And I taught them how to play light as a feather, stiff as a board, which is a sleepover classic. And after, you know, all of this, I knew that trust had been established when I could pull out my phone and play music because no phones were allowed at camp and the girls did not turn me in. And when one of them got her first period at camp and came to tell me about it and ask for my help to take care of it. So trust is vital in a community. And in my story, I think it illustrates how it's easier to quickly trust people if you feel a real kinship to them, whether, you know, that's right or not. And why we see more of an uneasy truce rather than full open-hearted trust between Gollum and the hobbits in this chapter. I saw myself in these girls and, you know, maybe vice versa. So we were able to build this trust over the very short period of summer camp. Do you think that Frodo is choosing to trust Gollum because he sees himself somewhere in Smeagol? And that's why Sam finds that relationship so much harder to, to support? I don't know. I think that's a good question. And it seems like there is a bit of a disparity between the books and the movies. I think the movies really speak to Frodo kind of seeing that in Smeagol a bit more. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's come across as clearly, at least in this first chapter. I think what's established is that Frodo really does feel pity for Mm -hmm. Smeagol, whether or not he sees himself in that kind of pitiful state. And so is maybe empathetic to his plight, even if he doesn't necessarily see his future in or a, you know, string of the multiverse future in Smeagol. I do think that Sam is uneasy about that, that truce, kind of regardless of, of whether he sees like a potential for Frodo and Smeagol as well. But if anyone were to see it, I would guess Sam would see it first. Mm -hmm. I like what you said about empathy. I think empathy is key in building trust. And the pity slash empathy that that Frodo feels, I think, is letting him maybe lean in a little bit more to this relationship when Sam is like, absolutely not. No, thank you. Right. I think you you make a good point there, too, where, like, pity and empathy here are kind of maybe operating in the same vein, but they aren't the same thing. Pity is Frodo seeing Smeagol as broken, but not seeing himself in that space, maybe, as much as empathy allows him to see, if not himself, a full person, a full entity struggle and strife beyond just the the very brokenness and sort of one down perspective that I think Sam is more likely to take with with Smeagol. Mm-hmm. I have to say I love your story as well. I think camp is such a good space to build trust in particular because you're removed from a lot of your normal like routines and circles and so even if you aren't necessarily inclined to spend time with these folks, camp provides sort of a 
maybe more of a blank slate mm-hmm. or um, more of a neutral space to start to build relationships, either with folks that you wouldn't usually or with people who are just new to you. And that's exciting. I think where that becomes really challenging is when you kind of return back to your normal life. What does that mean for building trust in spaces that you're in much more frequently? Are you less likely to see folks clearly? Are you less likely to reach across certain divides that you may experience? I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, if we turn to the classic work of Greece, mm. it does teach us that when you spend summer nights bridging boundaries across maybe different cliques mm-hmm. or different types of people, it takes real work to bring that back into your, into your day-to-day life. I like that you said that really in earnest. Um, and also, if that's a that's maybe a better lesson for all of us to take from Greece because we had no business watching it or emulating it at the ages that we were watching it, emulating it. Yeah, you know, it's fine. It's a problematic fave. Right. Let's just let's just put that out in the open. It's a problematic fave. Moving on. Okay, perfect. Okay. So now that we've laid the groundwork on what we're going to be looking at in trust in this chapter between these three characters, let's talk about what happened. Will you walk us through the highlights of these these few pages? I will do my best. So we pick up where we left off. It feels like a million years ago, right? This is a parallel <laughs> yes. timeline to, to the book we've just read. So it's three days since Frodo and Sam have left the company. And can we even remember that far back? I certainly couldn't. It kind of took me by surprise that that was the starting point for this new book. So as Frodo and Sam are kind of unsteadily making their way through this very harsh landscape, they seem a bit lost. They have maybe a few provisions other than their, and and it's mostly Lembus, really, And they're just kind of newly on this journey, separated from the company. The, like I said, the landscape is quite perilous. And so there are a couple of moments where Frodo is really doing his best to like scale some rock. And we learn that Sam is a little unsteady about all of this. Ultimately, he remembers, Sam does, that he has rope from the elves. And that becomes really useful in scaling a particularly perilous and tricky slope. And then they get to this point where, like, they can't really move forward. It's getting to be dark. It feels too dangerous to continue, so they're going to rest for the evening. And as they rest, they see this sort of creepy shadow outline coming down the rock face. And it is confirmed that Gollum, Smeagol, is still following Sam and Frodo. So as he reaches, Gollum does the sort of end of this rock cliff thing. Sam, like, jumps him and demands to know, like, what's going on. So Gollum gets the upper hand. Ultimately, Frodo intervenes and spares uh, Gollum's life. And then through maybe persuasion, maybe a little bit of manipulation on Frodo's part, Smeagol agrees to take Frodo and Sam to the gates of Mordor if they do not use the elven rope to sort of put a leash on him. 
because it seems to have a supernatural effect on him. Like he just, it burns him. It's really uncomfortable. And so he's going to be free to walk along with them to the gates of Mordor. And ultimately, a change comes over him when the rope is removed and he seems much more open, much more earnest to assist the journey of Frodo and Sam. And that's how we end our chapter. It is an interesting chapter and in that we do see now Frodo and Sam way out of their comfort zone. Right. We don't have any more people leading them. It's really just the two of them. And it's interesting to see what parts of their personality come out and are forced to come out because Strider isn't there and Gandalf isn't there. And now they have to be the ones deciding what they're going to do about Gollum because Aragorn let him ride for the, for the last like seven chapters floating down the river. Oh, yeah, he's been with us since Moria. So now all of this is coming onto their, their shoulder, isn't it? feels like they've gone off to college and now these decisions are theirs instead of their parents. Well, and I think that's a good segue into then where you saw examples of the theme because one of the questions I have for you is at some point, do we start to see trust in Frodo, trust in Sam, or trust in themselves as leaders as opposed to really relying on, like you said, a Gandalf or an Aragorn who has much more of a formal leadership role, not only within the community of the fellowship, but certainly in the world at large, right? In Middle-earth, they're recognized as leaders. I'd be curious to hear where you saw examples of the theme and if that emerged for you as, as an example. Well, it definitely didn't emerge at the beginning because my first example is page 235. And this is Sam absolutely not trusting himself to just climb down this rock. The quote's about halfway down the page. He says... Quote, I haven't changed my mind, but it's only sense. Put the one lowest as is most likely to slip. I don't want to come down atop of you and knock you off. No sense in killing two with one fall. So he is so certain that as he and Frodo climb down this, this rock face, because they're lost, they don't know how to get to Mordor, and so they've decided that the best way is down this potentially sheer rock. Sam does not have trust in himself. And so he wants to go first so he doesn't fall and kill Frodo. Right. Did you have any trouble kind of picturing the environment in which they're having these conversations? Because, spoiler alert, I definitely did. I was trying to understand, like, how this is all shaped when we get to the, like, precipice thing. Like, it just felt, it felt dark and dangerous, mm -hmm. certainly. But I, like, really couldn't get a grasp in my mind as to what it looked like that this is such a complex maneuvering for the two of them so it seems like they've come to a cliff and it's no longer sheer the book says it's sloped outwards a little like a great rampart or seawall whose foundations have shifted so that its courses were all twisted and disordered which i read as there being big cracks coming up so not like a lion king cliff but like the inverse of that. Mm. So it, it's more of a like a slide down, but still mm -hmm. quite steep. I don't know what 18 fathoms means. That was very unhelpful, <laughs> but it, it's a long way down. Right. Far. Far. It is far. It is Got far. It. <laughs> we can see the bottom maybe if the fog wasn't there, but it's far. So they have to repel, belay on. That's right. So, speaking of blaying on, 
they realize that Sam has rope. And so the next instance of trust actually comes after they've made it down this sloped cliff on page 241. Frodo actually uses the word trust. So the exact quote is, A good thing it held as long as it did to think that I trusted all my weight to your knot. Because they've both used this elven rope to climb down the cliff and... Sam was like, oh no, now it's tied up there and we're down here. And so he gives it a little farewell tug and the rope comes down. Frodo thinks it's because Sam tied the knot poorly. So he either doesn't trust Sam's abilities, but then he thinks, oh, well, maybe the rope actually got cut on a rock. So then he's not trusting the rope. But Sam is pretty adamant that he did the right thing in tying this knot and he tied it well and that the rope has just come because he asked it to well and as we remember it's a weird character note early maybe in maybe in the fellowship the, for the first book in the in the trilogy but we learn that sam is like pretty skilled at knots yeah. and that's part of the reason why he's so fascinated with like the elven rope when they're in lorian and and why he takes it because he really values rope And so it seems like kind of an off-character thing to mention at the time, but I think it just goes to show that Frodo maybe here is, like you said, not trusting, but certainly not willing to believe the supernatural or the unbelievable in this moment, and is much more willing to believe that which is convenient for him to believe, which is somehow Sam has, like ruined the rope mm-hmm. or not not tied the knot appropriately and i felt really defensive on sam's yeah. behalf i was like no 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 no. he's really good at knots and it's totally <laughs> a magic rope it came from the elves this it does not seem to me a crazy jump to think that the elves would make some rope that comes when you ask it to no i especially given all the other gifts that folks received yeah. as well i feel like we just had like a surplus of evidence that there's something a little bit magical about what just happened and for all of the other events of frodo's life for him to not believe that like the rope can come undone without anybody needing to have made a mistake right. is kind of a weird stance to take i feel yeah so i i think in 10 chapters or so he would not say that i think his trust in sam builds over this book and over the the following book but maybe at this point he's still thinking of him more as a gardener and less as an equal part in bearing this burden all the way to the end so we can we can keep an eye on that and see if maybe he he comes to trust him a little bit more as we progress okay so my next example page 248. I know we just talked about how maybe there was a little lack of trust here, but this example does show the deep relationship and the implicit trust that they have in in some things. This is between Frodo and Sam, and the quote is, Frodo looked across at Sam. Their eyes met and they understood. This is when they decide that they're going to pretend to fall asleep to lull Gollum into wanting to escape so that they can then grab him and be like, ha we knew it. You're not trustworthy. But that's such a, I don't know that I could just look at somebody in a situation like that and explain, okay, we're going to pretend to fall asleep and see if he does anything. That to me shows that they have been through a lot together and there is a, a deep relationship and a deep trust between the two. 
Yes, that's definitely a, a high context, uh, sort of low verbal conversation to have in a split second. Right. And to do it where, where it's also dark. <laughs> like So like maybe even your vision of the other person is not 100% yes. clear. Yeah, most of my eye contact conversations are like, oh my God, can you believe what that person just said? And then the other person's like, yeah, I know that was crazy. That That is the majority mm-hmm. of my nonverbal conversation so i was really impressed that they pulled out this this whole plan from a from a glance yeah very impressive for sure okay and my last instance is again frodo using the word trust so this is on page 249 and Gollum is saying how much pain he's in from this magic rope being on him and it really hurts him and please take it off and frodo says no i will not take it off you Not unless, he paused a moment and thought, not unless there is any promise you can make that I can trust. And at this point, Gollum swears by the ring. Not on the ring, Frodo won't show it to him, but he swears by the ring. And the final trust, the promise that that he makes that Frodo says he can trust, I will serve the master of the precious. And I wonder why Frodo believes this. Because Sam doesn't. And I wonder if it's maybe the ring working against Frodo. Because the ring knows that Gollum is further gone than Frodo. And if the ring wants to get back to the Great Eye, he's a better vessel. I don't know. What do you think? Why do you think Frodo trusts this promise from Smeagol. I don't know. It feels like he understands clearly that Smeagol finds the ring very important and that it's perhaps the only thing that's important to him. And so if he's swearing by it, that there is a level of understanding of that commitment because it's it's the only thing that he can hold dear if you can qualify it as such. But I too, I would be suspicious of that just given that it's words and that words are easily undone with actions and that Smeagol for what we know of him at this point has a bit of a rough history and that would be a pretty it would be an intense history to overcome abruptly for this one promise that he's made and so I don't know does Frodo trust it? Is he just being pragmatic and like, you have the knowledge I need. I trust this enough to go with you. Right, we'll keep our guard up, but we also have no idea where we're going and we need to keep moving forward. Right, so I think I think your, your qualification early on that it's more of an uneasy truce, it's probably more accurate, at least to how I would feel in this situation and perhaps how Frodo is, is thinking about this relationship as well. Mm-hmm. He does say on page 249, that the ring will hold you. He's like, but would you would you commit your promise to that, Smeagol? It will hold you. But it is more treacherous than you are. It may twist your words. Beware. So he might also be trusting in this power of the ring. I don't really understand the magic of the ring, but maybe swearing on it does carry some higher weight. I think it's a little bit of an ego check or it needs to be an ego check for frodo he is not the master of the ring he is the holder of the ring and so if smeagol is 
committing to serving that master, I don't know that he's choosing to serve Frodo at all. I think he's choosing to continue on exactly as he has and serve Sauron (laughs) and serve the Great Eye because that is who the ultimate master may be. Right. It totally is because that's how he betrays him in the end. He's like, well, if I have the ring, then I'm the master, so I'm going to serve myself. So the trust should not have been placed. Right. And of course, sitting on the sidelines, Sam is like, this is yeah, a really this dumb is a idea. Terrible plan. <laughs> he is like he is like the sober friend. Yeah. <laughs> who's like, no 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 no. This is a we really bad idea. We do not need idea. to go to the after party. We need to go home. We you need to have water and you need to have bread yeah. and you need to not do anything more than what we're doing exactly now and I love you so much. Let's get mm-hmm. in the car. <laughs> Yeah, no, Frodo's drunk on power with the ring, and he's like, what? Swear by the ring. (laughs) I know what I'm doing, and you're like, you don't, though. Babe, you really don't. (laughs) They just need a compass and a map, and they would figure it out. But instead, we end up with Smeagol. Feels like such a dramatic oversight to be like, yep, we're taking the ring, we're gonna go there, and that there ha- there wasn't any level Mm-mm. of, like, as a company, we should talk about what happens when we, or if we get separated. Like, here's our meeting spot in the mall parking lot. Nope. <laughs> Rally and figure out, or, like, here's what you need to know to get there. It was just like, bye, everybody. Good luck. Yeah, once you get past this point, every- you're on your own. We have nothing to give you. You have nothing to take best wishes right this is where gandalf to me feels like such a capricious figure because it's like you know he has this information somewhere he has access to it or he knows it himself and he didn't think like oh this might be helpful to impart upon the bearer of the ring no he didn't get a chance to do his book six one-on-one classes and teach him everything he needs to know in order to walk calmly into death Okay, that was maybe too much. We need to we need to now open our hearts again. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. All right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Do you have some like really lovely quotes that would help us open our hearts and minds back to this chapter? <laughs> I wouldn't call it a lovely quote. <laughs> There's a lot of stinky swamp in this one. Mm-hmm. But I do have a talking with Tolkien. It's on page 239. And the quote is the skirts of the storm were lifting ragged and wet and the main battle had passed to spread its great wings over the emin mule and which the dark thought of sauron brooded for a while excellent visuals Mm -hmm. but i like that this storm is then followed to minas tirith to gondor to rohan all the way to where the riders then see it. They say, the riders on the plain saw its black towers moving behind the sun as they rode into the west. And every once in a while, we get these nice omniscient narrator moments where you get to see a sunrise, you know, fall on all of the characters and it tells us where they are. Or the storm travel across Middle Earth and it tells us how people view it. And I really like those moments. I don't, I can't think of other books that give us this of like, and the weather touched everybody, Mm -hmm. but it's nice. It it reminds you that there is more beyond just what's happening in this chapter. And I, I really enjoy those times. 
And I think, too, it does a really good job of reminding you, like, the far... Because it does seem to be more than just a normal storm, right? right? For the fact that it reaches all of these places. And so I think it also sets the stage for the darkening of Middle Earth mm-hmm. and sort of the peril to come and how close and how present it is in in all of these spaces. Right, because this is the storm that the Nazgul rode out on. Right. And so it is now swooping. And it maybe that's the Nazgul then. It probably is. That's probably the Nazgul that got all the way out to where Pippin was when he was looking through the, the plant here in our last chapter. Right. Right. It's all coming together. Yeah, it's kind of, it's tough to remember, like I said, sort of the top. I'm not sure where exactly in their journey have Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas reunited with the renewed Gandalf the White after three days. I need to, like, chart out yeah. the timeline. There's a Twitter account that does that, and it's, it's like, on this day in Middle-earth, and it tells you the story completely chronologically (laughs) i would like to shout out the commitment to that because (laughs) holy cats i just wanted it i wasn't about to go do it by any means no someone's already (laughs) beat you to it so that person could tell you did you have any talking with tolkien to bring to this this episode I do. I have two, and they're very brief, and they are both Sam. <laughs> the highlight of this book. Yes. So on page 234, there is a conversation between Sam and Frodo regarding the landscape, and they're trying to decide how they're going to figure out this, like, edge that they've come to. And Sam is looking up at this, like, great cliff, and he said, quote, those as can't fly can jump (laughs) and i just like it because it's like you're right if you can't do the most you can still do a little and it makes an impact i don't think in this situation the jump was gonna be helpful but i did i did like taking that out of context and just as a reminder that like you can do a little bit even if you can't do the most and he he starts trying to they're like this is the bravest and stupidest thing he's ever done where he starts going off basically with his eyes closed no rope just being like well if frodo says we're going down we gotta go down he's got a good heart Mm -hmm. and then the other the other quote i just love so much is on page 240 so this is when sam realizes that he may have to part with his beloved rope and he says quote ninny hammers he said noodles my beautiful rope and i loved that so much and i just wanted to call attention to it ninny hammers noodles that would be a good throw pillow that would be a really good mm-hmm. one or like your two dogs yes ninny hammers and hammer noodles or gerbils <laughs> yeah that would be that would be precious And those are my two quotes. Excellent. I'm glad we were able to find something that we liked in this chapter. Agreed. I think we're doing average. (laughs) We're doing great. We are balancing how we feel about the chapter with some fun. Mm -hmm. And speaking of which, you have an action item for us today. So let's hear from you what we can do to build trust in our community. So I think that you can't have trust without intimacy. 
And so the action item today is all about building intimacy by discussing your pest projects, which unlike a pet project, a pest project is something in your life that you want to work on to improve. So this is a set of three questions from Vanessa Van Edwards, who's an author who writes about all sorts of human psychology topics. So the first question you will ask this person, what's one skill you've always wanted to learn? The next level, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? And then the third level is, what do you worry about most? And so these questions kind of build an intensity and the two of you can share your own answers and, and have a chat. But at the end, hopefully it will have increased the, the intimacy between you and this other person and thus increased the trust. I love that. Can you repeat the questions one more time? I can. The first question, what's one skill you have always wanted to learn? Question two, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Question three, what do you worry about most? Okay. Thank you. And we can put those on, we can put those on Twitter so that people can, people can read them. I'm excited. Those are, those are very interesting questions. And I think it's a reminder too that there is value in being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot expect more of someone than you expect of yourself if you're looking to have a trusting relationship. And so I would also be prepared to maybe answer those questions if you're going to ask them of someone else. Definitely. This is not a one-way interview. This is a two-way conversation. Well, thank you so much for that. I think that'll be a really enlightening conversation to have. Today's podcast was brought to you by Magic Elven Rope, Glows in the Dark and Cures Temporary Blindness. Our music is by Robert Zahn and Simon Dom. If you have thoughts on today's episode or homework assignment, send us a voicemail or email at infellowshippodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to take care of your community, stay hydrated, and thank you for joining us today in Fellowship. Okay, so we are talking about chapter one. Season four. Get it ready. Whoop. That was a freestyle, if you believe it. I um cannot I believe that. that. I have to imagine that's in your notes. <laughs> it was too genuine. It was too it was too on point. You can't just freestyle stuff like that. You can't just spontaneously come up with that kind of nonsense. Yeah, I'm just a woman of many talents. She's a Renaissance woman. I am a Renaissance. Speaking of which. Beyonce. Okay, moving on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we can't we can't get into that right now, oh but Oh my god. <laughs>